This podcast is proudly brought to you by Infinity Media, incubating innovative businesses in the media industry. Hi, I'm Gordon Muller. I'm a guru in the Doc and Guru podcast. Thanks for being with us. For those of you who don't know me, I've spent over 40 years in the media industry in South Africa and uh, pretty much made it my home, my life, my passion. I have other passions, unfortunately, for my sins. I'm an Arsenal supporter and a Shark supporter, so we're going to do pretty much everything on the show as it pertains to media, marketing and money, but we don't take jokes about Arsenal or the Sharks. I'm Doug Mateus, uh, the doc on the show. Uh, and again, for those of you who don't know me, I've uh, spent 30 years in, in uh, various companies in South Africa uh, running uh, different marketing functions. And the last job I had, I was privileged in, uh, enough to work with a team that took uh, the brand to the fastest growing brand in South Africa in 2018 with a 47% year-on-year growth. So that was a, a great achievement uh, for the team and, and, and I'm really proud of that. Uh, from a personal point of view, I do a little bit of cycling uh, and also snow skiing. So we quite enjoy that. But again, uh, today's discussion is around all things marketing and media. Yep, that's right, Doc. All things marketing and media. No subject too big, no topic too small, no subject too hot to handle please get in touch with us on our facebook page follow us like us whatever it takes we would love you to be involved with the show and uh, we really want to make it as inclusive and as energetic as i know this industry is capable of morning doc good to see you again Hey Gordon, how's it going? All right, you all geared up for uh, Black Friday. You've yeah, well, got, I see, yeah. six inches of notes there, uh, <laughs> price lists, everything mapped out. You're yeah. going to have a major assault on on, on Good Friday, or not Good Friday, Black Friday. <laughs> well, Good Friday, Friday for insult. a lot of people, but not uh, not necessary for us, uh, Gordon. You know, we don't uh, necessarily go out and, and shop uh, on on Black Friday for that matter. You know, um, yeah, but I mean, I guess and we'll chat a little bit later about price sensitivity and how that is being viewed through some of the research that's already been done this year, uh, specifically in, you know, this year that is a tough sort of um, a COVID year and, and people being price conscious. Yeah, and I was surprised and, and we're not going to unpack uh, Black Friday, you know, this week, we're going to wait for it to, to flow over. Because I posed the question, or maybe I'll pose that to our guest because you know the answer now. And our guest today is Gail Schimmel, who is Schimmel, who is the CEO of the Advertising Regulatory Board. Gail was the head of legal at the old ASA, so she's really been in a position to to see the journey over the past two decades. Um, we'll talk a little bit later on about uh, her recently released. Uh, a book which was done during COVID lockdown. So you've managed to launch a book during lockdown, which is more than 99.9% of the people on this planet. But Doc, I'm going to leave you to pick up uh, the repartee because you and, and Gail, I think, have worked together at some point as yeah, well. Absolutely, Gordon. Thanks, uh, Gail. Nice to see you again. Lovely to see you. Yeah, we haven't, uh, I haven't seen you for a bit. And uh, Gail helped us in, in my previous career. Uh, you know, every now and again, we'd uh, find ourselves with a, a tricky complaint of some description and uh, Gail would advise us one way or another. And uh, yeah, you know, just to, to, to try and navigate 
sometimes those tricky waters of advertising, and I guess it's, you know, many times it's a subjective thing, and, and sometimes it's quite clear in terms of what you should and shouldn't do, and I guess as, as a marketer, I think sometimes we push the boundary a little bit. A little but, bit. <laughs> <laughs> but in other cases, you know, we, uh, we felt we were in our right, and, and we won some and we lost some. So, yeah, thanks, thanks for, for the time, girl. You know, I know you're busy, and, and, uh, and we'll get into some of the, the more recent happenings that, uh, in, in your world at ARB. But also, you know, just um, as Gordon said, congratulations on your book. You know, a lot of people um, perhaps don't know uh, that about you, or, you know, they'd look at you from a, from a legal point of view. So it's quite an interesting combination, legal and the creative writing. You know, I think it's actually quite a common combination. I think a lot of creative people go into law because we think that law will be more creatively satisfying than it is. Mm. And, um, I mean, I think I've been very lucky. I have found a very creative area of law with, with advertising regulation, but most people aren't as lucky as I am. And you'll be amazed how many South African writers, certainly, but even internationally, are ex-lawyers as as one as one of my friends who's a well-known south african writer describes herself a recovered lawyer (laughs) (laughs) girl you've written i think you were saying five books now so i've written five published novels um and obviously there's always something in the something in the um pipeline and the next thing you'll be able to write read from me will be released on the 2nd of December and that's quite a fun one because it's something I've co-written a Mm. cozy mystery that's being published internationally and I'm writing under the name Katie Gale because my my co-writer is Kate and I'm Gale so we together are Katie Gale completely different from anything I've done and that's kept us very busy during lockdown a lot of fun yeah. Well, the book uh, that uh, we're referencing here um, was described by author Angela McCallwa, uh, who wrote the blessed, the blessed girl, spectacularly depressing ending. I don't think I've ever read a book with a more depressing. There ending. are two endings to that. Yeah, book. I believe so. I believe so because I, I went to the Kingsmead Book Fair and she explained mm. the Europeans weren't up for the. For the tough end, um, I think I read the happy end. Oh, did you? Okay, yes. well, okay, well, well done. You. But but she described your book, um, your latest book, as a psychological thriller questioning every angle of reality, which is probably a nice segue into our discussion today about Black Friday because the reality of Black Friday and the implementation seem to be vastly different. I mean, I see the uh, the clothing factory shop Black Friday starts. In fact, today, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, that's it. So what is Black Friday? I mean, it doesn't seem to have a place in the advertising regulatory uh, kind of codes of practice. It's a very difficult thing from a regulatory point of view because, you know, obviously Black Friday is all about specials. It's all about short-lived specials, and it's all about big specials. And the problem with the regulation of that is because it's so short-lived, if we find out there was something misleading in the way it was being advertised, so what? It's over. There's not a lot we can do. You know, we're not in the business of getting people the advertised deal. We're not in the business of punishment. We're in the business of pulling advertising that is harming the consumer. But when it comes to to Black Friday, what, what do you do? That ad was there for two days. We get the complaint afterwards and the ad's gone. So it's very challenging for us. And I think that's why discussions like we are having now are very important because it's about consumer education. It's about consumers expecting realistic outcomes from Black Friday. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a key point, isn't it? That the issue of do I get the price as advertised 
issues like uh, while stocks last, limited mm, stocks mm. available or undefined. I mean, ultimately, I would take that way to the Consumer Council. Yeah, that that would be one way of dealing with it or to to the Consumer Goods and Services Ombud if it is a member company of the Consumer Goods and Service Ombud, um, but often it's not. So that's challenging. You could take it to the Consumer Council, but I think the, I think the better way to deal with Black Friday is for consumers to be aware. First of all, be aware that when they say stocks are limited, they really do mean stocks are limited. You've got to be ready with your clicking finger as soon as that special is available. And second of all, if you're looking for something in particular, be aware what the pricing was before. Mm. Because it may well be that the advertised saving is not substantial, that, they, that you're not saving as much as they say you're saving. But if you're aware of the pricing of that particular item beforehand, then you will know what your real saving is and you won't be misled by that. Yeah, that's a key point. The, uh, the Which Publication Group in the UK did a study in, uh, in 2018 on, uh, on Black Friday and those points are exactly the ones they highlighted. Um, check the price history mm. and particular you know what they talked about was anchor prices check anchor prices they found instances where retailers had hoiked a price two three months before just so there was a record of a price mm. or an item selling at that price and then you use that as the anchor benchmark for the was now so you know i'm not suggesting it's happening in south africa but it certainly was widespread in europe well, it, it, it's already a challenge with online retailers who have that, um, you know, they'll have the, this was the price and now this is the saving. And then when you call on them to substantiate the price, often it's just the price they've been given by the third party supplier. Mm -hmm. And it can be quite difficult to substantiate. It will often be the recommended selling price. But how many people are actually selling at the recommended selling price? So that mm. becomes very difficult. It is a very worldwide, it is a very challenging area, this mm. area of what do you use as the base price? And that's why, again, I say be aware of the reality of the marketplace. Mm. I, I, I certainly know my 12-year-old son has a Christmas wish list <laughs> that, that we are <laughs> counting on Black Friday to get <laughs> us through. <laughs> but I think, Carl, you know, and, and again, it's, it's not a, a new notion, uh, let the, the consumer, let the buyer beware. That's, you know, that's a well-known and practiced part of, of law and, and consumer behavior. But I think maybe more so this year, you know, I've seen some prelim statistics from Batelier Group, Gordon. You kindly shared it with us from Gordon Hooper and co. Um, in terms of people looking forward to Black Friday, people being maybe more price aware, people feeling the pinch. You know, the average mm. person, uh, the, certainly who I interact with, is poorer today than they were a year ago. You know, they've suffered in some, some way. And I was having an interesting discussion the other day about... Um, with a guy about um, what are people going to look at? How do you really perceive real value? So the needs versus wants, you know what I mean? So what is it that you absolutely need at what price versus things? And, and, and I mean, yeah, again, you know, the opposite to that is, is the whole notion of behavioral economics and some um, people buying on an irrational basis, which, you know, who, who am I to say the person is irrational for buying something to make them feel better? You know what I mean? And so we all need that at the <laughs> moment. We all need to feel better. You know, and absolutely, girl, whether it's a, what, what I would perceive maybe an extravagant Christmas gift, that person says, you don't understand the trauma that my kid's gone through this year 
all the way through to grooming products, a holiday. You know, uh, people may may say on on the other side, I can't afford a holiday, so therefore I'm going to do something different with my time. So yeah, I think that the, the takeout is hopefully you know Black Friday are, are really good deals that people do buy because I certainly if I look at our household, you know, high ticket items we shop around. You know, we don't just go and buy. The last thing I think we bought was a, a new TV we needed, but we didn't just go buy it on the first weekend. You know, we did a lot of homework mm. versus a, I don't know, a packet of chewing gum. You know, that's not irrelevant in terms of what the pricing could be. So, yeah, look, I mean, there's extravagance, you know, and, and Christmas gifts depends entirely on whether it's incoming or outgoing. I personally have, <laughs> have no limits on extravagance for incoming <laughs> gifts myself. But yeah, you, you raise the point. I mean, looking at uh, the study from Geopol. Um, a high percentage of uh, items purchased in 2019 were electronics and appliances. Um, and interestingly enough, beauty accessories, we were talking about beauty accessories and whether during lockdown these might be a refuge for for women who uh, just needed to feel pretty good about mm-hmm. themselves. Girl, you had a view on that. You. I suddenly started buying makeup in lockdown. I'm not. I'm normally buying in this sort of cheap on-sale basket, the bare necessities, and I suddenly started buying really expensive makeup during lockdown. It was bizarre. And are you uh, are you teeing up Black Friday for uh, for a stock up? No, I have to say it hadn't even occurred to me, but thank you for suggesting that because <laughs> now I have another thing to worry about on Black Friday. What I'm finding interesting as a consumer is the the gamble in Black Friday because they drop the prices and then maybe they're going to drop the prices further the next day Mm. but maybe they're not maybe that thing will be sold out the next day do you buy today or do you wait till the better price tomorrow and I'm actually already feeling a bit stressed with that huge Christmas list we have in front of us about (laughs) how I'm going to deal with that (laughs) so I I must admit for me Black Friday is only something which crept into my consciousness you know maybe three four years ago I was blissfully Mm. aware of it other than as an kind of an academic marketing exercise but here's the question um, which i'm picking up from the price waterhouse cooper's report from uh, 2019 black friday looking at black friday retail sales over an ordinary shopping day what would you suggest the increases instinctively i mean did it increase 50 percent 100 percent what and i'll give you the global average as well I'm so bad at this. This is like being asked to guess somebody's age. Please don't force me to guess percentages. I'm imagining it's very big. Okay, Doc, you... Gordon asked me earlier and I gave him a ridiculously low number. So I'm not going to embarrass myself on air and tell you what (laughs) I said. Well, I'll tell you. I thought it was a 20% uplift. Really? Yeah. I, 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 in my mind, when I was reading this report, I said, like, it's got to be like maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe double, I would double be, up. I'd be like more near the 400%. Yep. Well, oh, it's 1,952% against a global average of 663. That's comparing Black Friday to an average retail shopping day. And then Friday to Friday, so Black Friday versus Friday as a retail shopping day. 2,500% increase. So I've suddenly started to take this a bit more seriously. It, it's actually, it's not just smoke and mirrors. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, and we see a huge increase in complaints mm. after Black Friday because mm. everybody who was waiting for the special saw the special and when they clicked, they couldn't get it. Yeah. And so we, we have, um, you know, we actually last year I didn't allow anyone to take leave over Black Friday week. Mm. Um, but now we have realized that 
when it comes to regulating Black Friday, it's just, it's it's too moot. It, it's after the fact, the special has come and gone. There is no point using our resources to issue a ruling to decide whether or not the saving was reasonable, to decide whether or not enough product was available because they're not advertising it anymore. Mm. So, yeah. I think the challenge though, Gail, uh, originally it was Black Friday the day, then it became Black Friday yeah. weekend, then it became Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Now, I mean, I'm seeing stuff, it's Black Friday I month. think it's just Black November now. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think the challenge there is that it, we, you know, where do you get to the point where you say, well, now nah, it's not a point in time. Mm. You know, it's like years ago, we, if we wanted to do a cheeky tactical ad, you do it on a Friday because the place is closed. Nothing can happen to you. You know you're going to get, you, you know it's going to get pulled on Monday, but it's a Friday to Monday, big burst on the weekend. I'm talking about a 30-day, 20-day period. Yeah. You know, the problem is also that they changed the special. Mm. So you now are looking at the thing that said 25% saving on the TV, but then overnight they've changed it. Now it's a 75% saving mm. on the TV. TV and it's it's very dynamic it moves a lot but I agree with you it might be that that we have a better outcome this year because of the ads running for longer we may be able to be more effective but again it is it, it's over this this Black Friday period and again I can't emphasize enough consumers just have to be beware yeah, yeah look um, one of the biggest growth areas is obviously online shopping so which opens up a whole new mm. difficulty for you um, you know social media um, if you you know if it's if it's after the fact, you know with a thirty second TV commercial, but social media with an online closeout in terms of the purchase, it's it's almost an invisible exchange. It's it's impossible to police. Well, it's it's not impossible if it's a if it's an ongoing advertising campaign, and you can go back and pull the historical social media. I'm never convinced how necessary that is because I believe social media is consumed as it's released. Mm. I think very few of us trawl back to see what they said three months ago but you can pull the historical tweet or social media post and you can prevent if it's if it's about a core positioning statement something like that you can prevent it happening and obviously one of the things with social media is to ensure that influencers and people like that are using the hashtag ad hashtag sponsorship Mm -hmm. that type of misleading advertising is not happening and that i think we have been very successful in raising awareness and when we do get complaints in policing that yeah i was working through your codes um and the the codes on social uh, social media were very very clear i think our last discussion i was under the impression it was a tabula rasa but that's certainly not the case Mm -hmm. the one area which i I didn't find or maybe i was looking the wrong place was was retail retail didn't seem to have very very clear codes as a generic category there were codes for food and all sorts of things is there, or, or does each one of those sit as a subset? Under there, is a, there is a code on food advertising to children. There is an appendix on that. But other than that, it's the general terms of the advertising code. And, you know, I'm a big believer that, that most of the problems we see fall under the general terms of the code. Misleading advertising, unsubstantiated advertising. It takes different forms in different industries, but it comes back to that core question, are you lying to the consumer? You're listening to The Dark and the Guru, proudly brought to you by Infinity Media. And I mean, just, girl, changing tact, uh, Gordon, I don't know if you wanted to ask anything else on Black Friday, but just looking more generally at AOB, and I think one of the big 
rulings of late uh, has been Safair. Let's just talk a little bit about uh, some people would have read and, and, and I guess, you know, they read the headline. Um, it was mask, no mask, some historical stuff put together. But I mean, let me not give you my version. Can you tell us the ruling and, and the thinking that went into, into that decision? I'm going to start by saying, let me be clear, there is no rule saying that everybody in every ad has to wear a mask. That is not what happened in the Safair decision. What happened in the Safair decision is the ad opens, you see people wearing masks, getting on a plane, they are observing all COVID protocols. You, as a viewer, are aware this is a COVID time that I'm seeing in this ad. These are COVID rules I'm seeing in this ad. They then arrive on holiday and for financial reasons the advertiser decided to use old footage of holidays. But as a viewer you're going, I'm in the time of COVID. These people have got off the plane and now they're not wearing masks. They're hugging and kissing their friends and they're sitting by the pool without masks on not observing social distancing. Does that mean when I go on holiday I don't have to wear my mask. And we were worried about that miscommunication. They had a teeny tiny disclaimer, but it was on for a very short time and for a um, right at the end of the commercial in tiny writing. Mm. So the, the advice we are giving to advertisers is is twofold. First of all, this was a unique set of circumstances in this ad. We are not saying every ad has to have masks. Mm. Second of all, be aware of disclaimers. Use disclaimers properly. Don't try and sneak a disclaimer in at the end. Have a proper disclaimer that everybody can read if you are all aware, all worried about, about what you're communicating in the ad. Maybe do a focus group test on whether you are achieving what you think you're achieving with your disclaimer. We are going to be very slow to rule against you if you bring us evidence of what a viewer is interpreting watching your ad. Mm. And then the second thing is you can be clever with your advertising. And I, I always come back to this. A clever creative mm. can work within the rules cleverly. Mm. So you want to show a Christmas scene, but who wants to show Christmas with everybody wearing their masks because that's going to be a pretty sad Christmas. Yeah. Just put a label saying Christmas 2019 yeah. at the bottom of your of your visual, mm. because then everybody's aware that Christmas is a pre-COVID Christmas. Yes, yes. Maybe 2018 might be safer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. So, Gail, tell me, so now, if, if, if as an advertiser, do those rules exist? Some, in other words, let's take a practical example. Does my disclaimer have to be a certain font size, a certain duration on a 30-second TV ad? So, we don't have the only area where there are very strict rules about it must be this size and this amount mm. of the screen is when it comes to alcohol advertising. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so it's alcohol gambling, that type of thing, you know? So, the, yeah, so, so alcohol is the one where they're very strict rules about that we we recognize in our rules that every ad is different and we are loath to have one size fits all rules because it can be a disclaimer that on a very plain screen is perfectly legible mm. that same disclaimer becomes more difficult to read on a very busy screen with lots of information so we, we take it has to be legible and it has to be on long enough for the reasonable consumer to be able to read it not the speed reading consumer to be able to read it uh, the moment we have to watch twice and pause to read a disclaimer mm. we're going to be worried i really believe that most creative people most makers of advertising have a gut feel when they're going wrong mm. and this is one of those areas follow your gut feel if you know you're trying to cut a corner yeah. The ARB 
are luckily for me not staffed by idiots, mm. we will realize that the consumer can't read the disclaimer. Sure, sure. Okay. And I guess the safe thing then, and I, and I, I don't know how many people will do that, is to test that with you prior to going down that road. That's a problem oh. because we can't pre-clear advertising okay. because then we can't make a neutral a, a decision, decision when we get a complaint. And, you know, it's coming up more and more. And internationally, um, the self-regulatory organizations offer do, often do offer pre-clearance services. And every few years it comes up as a discussion again. And I think we are ripe for another discussion should the ARB be offering pre-clearance services. But the ACA do offer it at the moment. Okay. Yeah, you have to, I mean, you know, going back to the early days of having your commercials pre-approved by the SABC, you know, um, even sort of pre-ASA um, was massively problematic mm. um, in terms of perceived interference, but just timelines. You know, you want to get a campaign out. You, you can't wait for a, a hearing, that sort of That's thing. So it was, real, exactly. it was really difficult. If you offer the service, you've got to be able to yeah, offer it fast. You've got to do it quickly. Um, just, uh, you know, coming back to the ASA, I mean, in your sort of 20-year journey, what's shifted? What, I mean, if you were to isolate two or three key points, what's the big shift from where we were? Because where we were didn't work or, or did not appear to work. Um, so, and so how did you make yeah. it functional again? So ju just to be clear, in my journey, I worked at the ASA about, um, about 17 years ago because it's when I got married, so 17 years ago. Uh, I worked there for about four years. I worked through the change of management um, and I, I realized with the management change, as I was realizing that it was going to be difficult for me to continue to work there, that we had a different view of how things should be, I also got headhunted. So I had a push-pull situation and I left the ASA, but then promptly got pregnant and left the job I'd been headhunted for to work as a consultant, which is when Doug and I um, had a lot to do with each other. Um, and then when the ASA got into trouble, I went to the business rescue practitioners and said, I think I can help and came on as the new CEO of the ASA in that situation and have seen from the change from the ASA to the ARB. So that's the background. I think the biggest change from the ASA to the ARB, there are a number of changes we've tried to, we've tried to bring. We have tried to lose the arrogance. We are a servant of the industry. We might sometimes be pulling your lovely creative work, but we are essentially a servant of the industry. So while we're making decisions, we have to do it with, with that service aspect. So we have to do it quickly. We have to give you quality decisions. We also have accepted that self-regulation is limited. There, are, there is not a way short of a very powerful piece of legislation and even then we all know murders against the law it doesn't stop people murdering so I very much doubt that if you make listening to the ARB the law that everyone's going to listen to the ARB you know you have to accept the limitations of self-regulation of advertising there are going to be rogue advertisers we're not going to fix every problem so we focus on those problems we can fix meaningfully um, and the problems we can't we do up to the point that we can and then we hope um, somewhat emptily that the relevant government department will step in where, where we can't help. Um, so, th so that's one of the things. The other thing we are trying to do more of is when we get a complaint and very few people are aware about 80% of the complaints we get we don't formally investigate. Mm. They might be because they don't fall under our jurisdiction. They might be because people are crazy because people really are crazy. Mm. And they might be that somebody just wants the thing 
the mm. thing was advertised and they want the thing. And now it's not in our remit or our jurisdiction to order you to give them the thing. But what we're trying to do more of is write to the advertiser and go, we think there's a resolution here that, that, you, can, that you can quite easily make this go away. Do you want to make it go away? Mm. Um, and then we can solve it like that without having to have a formal investigation into the advertising. Well, I think it's quite important, Gordon. You know, and, and I think we and I have chatted off air about you know, how does a complaint get to you and how seriously do you take it? Do you, do you look at every single one? You know, is there a number? How does it? So, Gail, if you can just run through the thinking of, around that. And then a while ago, you and I spoke about, does Red Bull not really give you wings? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, th- I seem to remember we've had this argument before. Okay, we, we react to every single complaint we receive. If you send us a complaint, we will write back to you. If you don't get a letter back from, you, some, from us, something went wrong technically. Um, but we only formally investigate 20% of complaints. We, look, we don't look at number of complaints. We look at validity of complaints. So one valid complaint is enough to get an ad pulled. And we know sometimes with great pleasure from the, from the people watching our work, sometimes with great displeasure from the people watching our work, one complaint is enough to get an ad pulled if it's a valid complaint in our view. Um, there is always a subjective element there, but the reason one complaint is enough is there are a number. One valid complaint is better than 200 mad complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've talked about the example with you guys before of the old essay. We got 2,000 complaints from angry Christians about a Nando's ad that did not exist. Mm. The ad, not it was not a fake Nando's ad. It didn't exist at all. Yeah. But we had 2,000 complaints about it. So validity of complaints is more important than numbers. And the other big thing is that one is the least arbitrary number. Mm. If we say we have to have 10 complaints before we investigate, mm. what if we get nine excellent complaints where we can see there is a real issue here consumers are being harmed but we only got nine complaints and then the other thing that will happen is if we have a threshold we'll start having organized campaigns to flood our boxes because then they'll think 2,000 complaints is better than one and it will use up our resources trying to tell 2,000 people to calm down rather let it be one valid complaint that we can deal with properly than 2,000 crazy complaints. As you say, on the other side, you you did actually, I think you were saying to me a while ago, um, about somebody writing and saying, doesn't Red Bull give you wings? Was that the the real example? I mean, it really happened? Really happened. (laughs) I bought a Red Bull, it didn't give me wings, I want my money back and I want you to pull the ad, people are being misled. The the, the level of crazy we see is unbelievable. I'm trying to think of recent examples and my mind's gone blank. One of my favorite ones, but this is quite an old one now, is a woman who complained about a poster with people wearing underwear and she didn't think it was appropriate, but it turned out she was in an underwear <laughs> shop when she saw the poster. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's like complaining about politicians when you're in Parliament. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the Politicians Regulatory Board where we have a set of rules to govern lies from politicians but um i think i I remember our last discussion um i I enjoyed the elegance of one as a piece of reasoning but what i didn't pick up that first time around but what's resonating with me now is one valid 
One complaint. valid complaint. And that's, I think, the emphasis which I had missed the first time And around. we throw out, well, throw out 80% of mm-hmm. the complaints we receive, either lack of jurisdiction, lack of information we require. We are, require a certain bit of work from the consumer. We want your ID number. We want to know you're a real person. We're going to use your name. So if you're not willing to go out there with your name out there, mm-hmm. then you can't complain to us. Um, we, we require information from you. So quite a lot don't give us the information we want. They might be. They want their money back. That's another big one that we can't get you your money back. And then, like I said, the crazy people. Um, and we'll write a letter, and we, we try to understand where complaints are coming from. You know, we've just had quite a interesting one where we actually did go to formal ruling about a dad changing his daughter's nappy and applying ointment to her bottom, and a lot of people were outraged. Baby rape and sexualizing babies, and it was a very interesting ad because it's turning stereotypes on its head. Is this a recent ad? Very the one recent I ad. Seriously? It's people complain about it. Yes. I know exactly the one you're talking Quite about. A number. Yeah. So with that one, the first complaint we got, we wrote a letter, and we said we recognize baby rape is a very serious problem, and child abuse is a very serious problem, but the baby in this ad is neither being raped nor abused. It's having its nappy changed mm-hmm. by its loving father. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about that ad, the dad is not a conventional no, no, dad. He's, not. He's, uh, he's a hipster kind of yeah. dude covered in tattoos yeah. with a big beard. And I think that actually might be the thing that's that's riling people okay. a bit mm-hmm. and, and making them uncomfortable. But what a strong ad in terms of challenging stereotypes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so much of the work the advertising industry should be doing yeah. is around challenging gender stereotypes. Yeah. Um, so a very interesting one there. Well, one so thing the ruling? Uh, sorry, Gordon, no, no, go. did you guys rule, obviously, uh, so in favor of the advertising? We got so many complaints that we decided it would be better to issue a ruling than to keep having to write a letter. Okay. Um, so we issued a ruling and we said that it was fine. Yeah, okay, all right. Sure. But I mean, you know, and again, you know, through numerous times we've spoken about gender, stereotype, gender vi- violence, and a whole lot of other things. So it is, it, it's interesting, but I suppose good, because I know the ad as well, you know, um, that that you ruled, you know, in, in favor, that people can open up. But, but sometimes it's maybe, it's maybe just the tattoo, you know, you don't know. And I say you, people, maybe, I certainly don't. What is it, you know, if, if the guy just been the stereotypical guy in the polo yeah, shirt with, exactly. the, with the chino shorts, would it have been more acceptable? I don't know. You know? I would love to see a study, uh, a consumer group study yeah. on that, on reactions to the edgy dad versus a very conservative looking dad and I promise you it would have turned wow. out different. Okay, well live and learn. I mean the one thing about changing poo nappies when I was a dad <laughs> stopped me biting my fingernails. That was uh, a lifelong habit cured. Um, just <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you never, you know, guys, oversharing. you never quite know what, you, what you're going to get in these shows. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I'm oversharing. It <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't on my list of notes. It's just two pages, but anyway. I'll take care of your fingernail biting husband. Shovel yeah, get him. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've got one last question. I'm going to lob it back to the doc to wrap. I mean, I was also just uh, reading with interest, the, and you mentioned in the International Council for um, Ad Self-Regulation, we're obviously a... Uh, a party to yes. that is there a convergence in thinking because there was a statement there which was very clear about allowing each country to express itself within the confines but do you find there's a, a growing conformity so so we all work as our basic um source with the icc code um of advertising so we all use that as the basic document from which we grow our own codes but obviously every every country has its own challenges but one of the things that's come out of COVID is you know we used to have like once a year an international meeting and if i was very lucky i had the budget to go um 
And then this year, we've been having Regular actually this afternoon. I've got a meeting with the entire world of self-regulatory organizations, and we just chat about what our challenges are at the moment. Um, and we use each other a lot um, to, to, to research issues like what are you doing about this? We, we, have a, we have a mat in court at the moment where the international community has been absolutely magnificent for me, such a source of information. So I think, I think like in every single area, Global Village. Yeah. Doc, I'm going to love it back at you. Yeah, thanks, Gordon. Uh, girl, thanks. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, we could have chatted for a lot longer, but our time's up. Girl, just how do people get a hold of you at, at, at the AOB? It's girl. quite hard at the moment because we're working from home still on the whole. Okay. So the best way is to, to email us, info at arb.org.za. You can email me directly at scale, G-A-I-L, at arb.org.za. And if you want to lodge a complaint, please Use the online form because then we will get all the information we need. Great. Excellent. And I, and I think just one last thing from my side, um, and again, we didn't touch on it on air, is the whole education. I know that as um, you know, when I was running a team, sometimes the guys are lazy. So we'd rely on in-house counsel and not necessarily read the codes ourselves and familiarize ourselves. So I've got to put my hand up as, as, as one who perhaps did that. Now, my... It's easy sitting here behind the microphone and I don't <laughs> want to preach, but I am suggesting to people out there, make the time, take the time, make the effort. You know, don't just rely on your in-house counsel, uh, although they're convenient, um, is familiarize yourself with the codes and save yourself a lot of pain down the road. And make sure your young creatives know what the rules are because mm. it gives them a voice when they're in that difficult situation and they know something's going wrong. If they know the rules, you give them strength in their voices. Yeah. Yeah, just, I mean, I think, uh, leaping back very quickly, you know, um, we had a, a saying when I worked at Saatchi and Saatchi, which was, give me the freedom of a tight brief. It's actually quite liberating. If you know what the boundaries are and you have full mm -hmm. reign within those boundaries, it, it can be quite liberating. I'd certainly buy that. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, uh, thanks, Gal. Thanks again for your time. Um, and we will catch everybody next week. That's another episode of The Doc and the Guru. Ciao for now. And so there was another episode of The Doc and the Guru. Please don't uh, forget to get a hold of us on Facebook, like us, follow us, uh, subscribe to the podcast. And then from my side, you can get a hold of me on LinkedIn, Dr. Doug Mataz. I'm uh, very active and very keen to hear about your views uh, and certainly will respond. And hopefully we can bring that into the show. Thanks, Doc. And it's uh, Gordon Muller, the Guru, signing off. Thank you for being with us and listening into this podcast today. You can pick up the discussion with me on my Twitter handle, at Mzanzi Media. And I'd love to engage with you on any of the issues that we've taken on in the show. And take us at our word. This is really going to be an open forum. There are no subjects that are taboo. And we'd love to have some of the younger, more under-listened, if that's the correct phrase, uh, voices to join us uh, in this discussion. Thanks for your time. The Dark and the Guru, proudly brought to you by Infinity Media, incubating innovative businesses in the media industry.